Scripture reading will be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 through 10. 1 Timothy 6. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus and that it is the free gift, God, that you have made available to us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you love us that you are sovereign and you are in control of all the affairs of this world. And Father, we would, because of your love for us, which you have so demonstrated to us in giving your son for us, we pray, God, that we would love you and, and continue to just afresh yield ourselves to you. Not to gain your pleasure, to gain your love, Lord, but because you have first loved us. And we thank you for this privilege of being in a loving relationship with you. And we do want you to speak to us and to work in us, God, of your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. I appreciate Jeff filling in for me last week. Patsy and I went up to Dallas and were there for Dallas Seminary's graduation. We saw James Magana graduate, who is the husband of our former cook at his hill, Sheila um, who was with us for 14 years, and so it was great to be a part of that. I think he took eight or ten years or something like that to graduate, so it was quite the celebration. Um, well, Paul now in First Timothy, in these last couple of chapters, has been giving some very practical instruction to the church body. He's been talking about widows and caring for them, and now he's talking about slaves and then about, again, false teachers for the third time, and then he'll speak about contentment and, and the use of wealth. I think in this last chapter and in, in all that he says, it, two things stand out. And that being the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> he is in control of everything that happens in this world. And our attitude in response to that. And what he's looking for is an attitude of joyful surrender and submission to him in all the circumstances of life. Surrender and submission are not easy, 
In fact, we don't even like the words. Typically, teeth start grinding when we talk about surrender and submission. It always brings to mind my older brother, who used to, for some reason I'll never understand, delight to pin me down on the ground with his um, elbows holding my, I mean, his knees holding my elbows down, and then he would thump my chest, and it would hurt a lot. And he would say, cry uncle, cry uncle. I don't know what uncle has to do with anything, but you know the, you know the, <laughs> the procedure, the drill. And so you, when, you watch, when finally you feel like your chest is about to crack, you say, uncle. And you could, have just, you could have just do it as soon as the first time he hits you. Uncle, that's not fun for him. It's not fun for you. And so, but we hate surrender and submission. And then once you finally get up, you chase after your brother and you try to hit him or something. It's not a joyful surrender. It's not a surrender from the heart. Paul says there is a whole different disposition that ought to be true in those who call upon the name of Jesus. And it really has little to do with being a slave, as is how this chapter starts out, um, or any of the other circumstances, as in all things, it has to do with the Lord Jesus himself. And in surrender, and with a joyful heart, Jesus became a man, and gave himself for us, was completely obedient, even to the point of death. And that being what informs all that Paul is saying, he says to slaves in these first two verses, let all who are under the yoke. Now, if he just stopped with that, it would be all of us because we are all under the yoke. But particularly, he he defines it down a little bit further, let all of us who are under the yoke as slaves. Now, there's nothing good about being a slave. Um, Like... Dean's um, illustration about being one-armed, I guess if you think about it long enough, maybe you can find something good about being a slave. But you really got to think a long time. It's an institution that is abominable. It's certainly not an institution that God um, formed. And yet it's an institution that under the Roman world, that a full 25 to 30% of the population was slave. And in some places it was much higher. In the city of Rome itself, it was estimated, at least at times, that, the, that over half the population of the city of Rome was slave. You could be um, sold into slavery because family members just give you up. Amazing thing to think about, but it still happens today. Mom or dad, or in the case of Joseph and his ten older brothers, they just decide they don't want you anymore. Maybe they want the money they can get from you, and so they sell you into slavery. You could be a captive of war, and so you are the spoils of war. Your country was overrun, you were taken captive, and as a spoil of war, once you are are, are taken back to the country of the the winning um, side, um, they could sell you to the highest bidder. You could become a slave because of your own debt. And you had to pay it off. And so that was probably the the most favorable way to become a slave and to live in slavery because there was an end in sight. Once you get get your debt paid off, then you're released. You could be born a slave. Your parents were slaves. And you were born into it. And you're stuck with it. But however you became a slave, other than um, paying off a debt, you had no rights and your life 
was worth very little. In terms of the, in, in, in the terms of the master had full right to kill you, and he would never be taken to court. So he could beat you, he could abuse you, and he could execute you if he so chose. Now, most masters didn't want to kill their slaves because in most instances they became slaves because he paid a lot of money for you. And so it was not in his financial best interest to kill you or to maim you to a point that you couldn't work. But he would do everything short of that if he chose to. And you had no recourse. Nothing you could do except cry out to God. And so Paul speaks to those, and it would have been a big percentage of the early church, were slaves. And he says to them, regard your masters as worthy of all honor. You've got to be kidding. When people read the Bible and try to just make it blend seamlessly into culture and would preach as though there's really no difference, I'm wondering what Bible they're reading. Because this is so countercultural, There is nothing in the world that would say you should honor those who abuse you. And some of them take delight in doing it. You have no right to say anything, to do anything, and by the way, give all respect to them. We love honor and respect. Being at the graduation last weekend, I was reminded again of just how well we can do it sometimes. And all those graduates walking across the stage one at a time, and then everybody holding the applause until the very end, and everybody standing and applauding for all of them. They have their caps and gowns on. It's quite um, the, the show. We like that kind of thing. Who doesn't? But to be despitefully, to be, to be disrespected, to, to be disregarded as even having any worth as a human being, to be treated worse than dirt, and then to turn around and give honor and respect to those individuals. You can see how this extends to all of life. And this is the, mo- this is the most base level of human interaction, master and slave. And if that, on that most base level, The slave is to give all honor and respect to his master. Certainly this extends to every other area of working relationship or any other relationship. There's no exemption here. If the slave has to give honor and respect, then all of us as Christians are to give honor and respect in every relationship that we are in. That is not what the world tells us. If we don't, then the name of God will be spoken against and our doctrine will be spoken against. Well, in what way? We preach that God is in control. And we preach that our God is a good God. We preach that our life is to honor Him in all that we do. Well, how then can living a dishonorable life in ingratitude, showing disrespect, in any way reflect on the God that I say my life honors and that he is in control of everything that happens in this world? My life 
lies against what I say is true about God. My very salvation is based upon the Son of God humbling himself and becoming man and being treated like dirt. And yet I'm not willing to be treated as he was. And so a life of disrespect and dishonor disrespects and dishonors the one who gave himself for me. My life blasphemes God and blasphemes the gospel when I live with an attitude toward those that, I'm, that I have to relate to as being my authority. Disrespect toward men disrespects God. We can help or hurt other people coming to Christ by how we live in relation to the authorities that God has put into our lives. Believing masters, he's going to say, are owed more respect and service, not less. Look at verse 2. Let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. What a temptation that would be. I mean, we just put it in the, in a, in the workforce language. Your boss is a Christian, but he's kind of a bad boss. But he's your boss nonetheless. Let's even just say he's a good boss. But he gets to decide what days you work and what days you don't work. He sets the hours. He sets your wages. He determines what your responsibilities are going to be. It's up to him and not to you. And you don't like it because he's your brother in Christ. Aren't you owed an explanation? Aren't you owed the decency of saying, can we just sit down and talk about what days off would be best for me? How it affects me when you have me work this shift that I really can't afford to work? And the scripture says, close your mouth. The scripture says, just because he's your brother doesn't give you the right to have an attitude toward him. Because he's your brother, you have all the more obligation to serve him and to do it joyfully, to do it well, as unto God. Let them serve all the more. You're not less obligated because he's a Christian. You are more obligated. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Now, Paul has a lot to say about masters and slaves in Ephesians and Colossians. Interestingly, here in 1 Timothy, he leaves out talking to the masters. But in Ephesians and Colossians, he'll say, treat them kindly. Don't be severe toward them. You need to love them and show respect to them. But here he just says, I got one point here, it's the slaves. You need to serve them as you would God. The institution of slavery is a problem, to say the least. But it isn't a problem that you as a slave have any power to address. It's not a problem you can fix. You have no control over it. But you do have a control over your attitude. You have no rights as a slave. 
And we have no rights as a Christian. It's hard for us to believe as Americans, and especially as Texas Americans. We don't have any rights. We gave up all our rights to ourselves when we said yes to Jesus. It's his life. It isn't ours. But we do, toward our employers, toward those that we are in an authority relationship with, we do have responsibilities and obligations. And specifically, to honor God, to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, to honor what the scripture says, to live as unto God, as we live under men. There are no perfect authority structures in this world. Some bosses are better than others. I've been blessed through my life. For the most part, I've had some pretty good bosses. But I've had some bad ones too that look at you and call you names you never heard before. I've had those kind of bosses. I've had bosses that I can't even go into it on a Sunday morning. I'm telling you, the things that they have said and done. As I heard Charles Swindoll say one time about the Marine Corps, there are some masterpieces of depravity in the Marine Corps. I have had some bosses that were masterpieces of depravity. And the scripture says, respect them, honor them. And if that person who is giving you so much grief, happens to be a believer, all the more so. All the more so. Anything less dishonors Christ, who gave himself for us. And again, it is not just surrender, but your teeth are grinding. It's with joy. This is a supernatural life. There is nothing here that the world can understand. How can you do this? It's only by understanding that this world is not all there is. And our master is not flesh and blood. It is our God in heaven. And this is a temporary set of circumstances. And it may be this is the way it's going to be until we die. But death is not all there is. And there is an exceeding weight of glory awaiting each of us that far surpasses anything we will experience in this life. And so really it gets back to God is sovereign. He does all things well. There is nothing that he cannot work together for good. This life is not all there is. And we can joyfully submit to him in every circumstance of life. I've told you the story about my professor in college who was so upset because he didn't get tenure. And he groused and complained about it and told some of the students, those of us that were close to him, seniors in particular, I took up his offense and decided at the urging of a bunch of the other seniors that I would go talk to the president of the school and set him straight on how wrong he was to not give this professor tenure. And I made my appointment with the president, and his assistant said, well, he's a busy man. It'll take a couple weeks before you can see him. 
fortunately, spring break came up ahead of time, between the time. So I came back here to Texas, went to see an old missionary friend who was already six, seven hundred years old. And, um, and I always appreciated seeing him because it was like just being in the presence of, of Jesus. And he asked me how things were going in Bible college, and I told him about my professor friend that was not getting tenure and how I had made an appointment with the president, and I was going to tell the president how long this was. And my old missionary friend appeared to take a nap. He put his head down on his chest and closed his eyes. And I am so stupid. I'm actually thinking he's sleeping. But what he's doing is he is praying for his young, dumb friend. And he is just saying, God, God, help me to know what to say to my friend Charles because he is an idiot. And when he finally wakes up from his nap, he says, Charles, never called me Charlie, he's always Charles, Charles, very slow, measured words, because I'm a simpleton and I need them, and he knows that. (laughs) Charles, when I was a young man in university, no student would make an appointment with the president for any reason whatsoever. There was no anger in his voice. There was no impatience in his voice. It was just a clear, slow statement of fact. Now, I'm pretty stupid. And that was one of those rare occasions when I got the hint. Because guys don't do hints real well. And And I heard what he was saying. Who do you think you are? Wow. I went back to school, I kept the appointment, never said a word about that tenure situation. Number of years later, I'm on staff already at His Hill, finished seminary, maybe 10 years have gone by, and I heard that that professor was going to be in San Antonio. So I got in touch with him and took him out to lunch. And I said, you remember when you didn't get tenure? And I'm just kind of wondering, you know, is there any bitterness in him now? Because I've still taken up his offense. And as soon as I brought up the subject, boy, he jumped on it. And he goes, do I remember? And I'm thinking, here it comes. Yeah, you know. And he goes, best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, uh, uh." And I'm going, what? And he goes, that man is a godly man. I didn't know it at the time, but he was hearing from God, being directed by God. And if he hadn't been obedient to God, I would not be where I am today doing what I am. I thank God for that man. And I was so glad I kept my mouth shut back in those Bible college days. Is he in control or is he not? We preach that God is sovereign. We preach that God loves us. We preach that there is nothing that, God, that can happen in this world that God can't use it for good. And yet we show up to work with a bad, sorry attitude, complaining about our bosses, complaining about our pay, complaining about our time off, complaining, complaining, complaining. And we are preaching a message that is contradictory to what we say we believe, preaching by our attitude. Paul says it's wrong. Surrender with a joyful heart, not to your masters, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, who surrendered himself for us. 
That's just the first here. Now he moves from here to talking again about false teachers. Chapter 1, chapter 4, now chapter 6. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. I'm telling you, I love Paul. (laughs) We can't get away with talking like that to each other. Paul says, I don't have to be politically correct, okay? Because I'm writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so there's no need to be politically correct. This kind of person is conceited and understands nothing. Now, what is he talking about in particular? I think, again, basically he's talking about people who have not put themselves in a surrendered, submissive posture to the Word of God, for whatever reason. And they don't, they don't come across as being rebels to what Scripture's saying. They don't even necessarily come across as being false teachers. They may just come across as just kind of questioning. They, they just may be those that just say, you know, I, I'm just not, it's just not that so clear to me. Uh, you know, I'm just, it's just not, I'm just still having some questions here. It, it, they, they're ones who, who are, are just saying, you know, it just needs to be thought through, maybe, maybe just stewed on a little bit more. These are those academics in the body of Christ who aren't willing to just take the simple truths of God's word at face value. And they think it's because there's just an academic intellectual hurdle that needs to be overcome when in fact the word of God can't be any simpler and any clearer than what it is. But rather than just say, I'm unwilling to do what the Bible has stated plainly, they say, you know, I just think there's more to it than that. And it sounds so plausible because they're so smart and their vocabularies are so big. And they've got so many degrees. Maybe there's something here I should be thinking of that I haven't seen before. Maybe I should give some pause here before, to this. When it couldn't be clear what God is saying. Different doctrines, disagreement with sound words. These are doctrines other than Scripture. Other than what Scripture clearly teaches. Disagreement with what the Bible has clearly said. What are these doctrines that don't conform to godliness? Well, we already saw chapter 3, the mystery of godliness is Christ himself, God in the believer. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. God has come to indwell the believer. And the Christian life is something that he does. He saves us. He lives out the Christian life. It isn't, as Dean said this morning, based upon my performance or works, but it's based upon what he does. This is the mystery of godliness. And if there are doctrines that are leading me to what I have to do and not to dependence upon Jesus Christ, they are not doctrines that conform to godliness. They are man's works. They are heretical teaching. If it brings me to me and not to Jesus, how can it be a doctrine that is conforming to godliness? If it takes me away from faith in Jesus Christ and dependence upon him and his grace, 
then no matter how good it may sound, how intellectual, how reasonable it is, it is not a doctrine conforming to godliness. Doctrines that are untrue of the person of God. When Christians are exhorting each other to do what will make them fulfilled, that is not a doctrine that conforms to godliness. Jesus did not come seeking his fulfillment. He came and emptied himself on our behalf. When Christians are preaching, you need just to seek after whatever is going to give you the most in this life. That is not a doctrine conforming to godliness. When Christians are exhorting each other, God knows that you can't live this way, and he knows what, you, what he said in his word may indicate something else, but you just need to do what you know that you can do, and God doesn't expect anything more of you than that. We're not bringing people to the necessity of depending upon Jesus Christ in all things. It is not a doctrine conforming to godliness. When Christians are exhorting each other to do, let me just put it this way, that which God himself would never do. How can that be a doctrine that conforms to godliness? Remember, godliness is just a contraction of God-likeness. And if the doctrine that we're teaching the body of Christ is untrue of the person of God, and I hope I die saying these things, because it is the truth. If we are teaching Christians they can do That which God himself would never do. It is not a godly doctrine. It is a doctrine that is untrue of God. So how can it bring us into godliness when the very thing that we're preaching is untrue of God himself? That's what Paul's saying here. And it comes back to that basic, simple, sinful disposition that I will not surrender. And what God is asking of me is impossible. Amen. That's exactly the point. He is looking for his life to be reproduced in us and only God can do it. And anything else is not godliness. It is Humanness. It is a doctrine of humanity and not the doctrine of God. This person may appeal to be a learner, one who is searching for the truth, one who just thinks there's more to be considered than than the simple statements of God's truth. Paul says he is conceited. Don't be deceived. This is not a humble person. A humble person submits to the truth and authority of God's word. That person who always has one more question and can't simply embrace the simple truths of God's word is not an intellectual person. They are a conceited person. We should not emulate them. They are not being smart. They are not demonstrating their superior intelligence. Paul says they understand 
nothing. The slave that disrespects and dishonors his master disrespects and dishonors God in Scripture. His life is not conforming to God in his word. His life does not conform to godliness. And those who teach things that don't conform to God and his word are obviously not in submission to God and his word. They have put themselves in authority over it. They are not enlightened. They may be smart. They may be intellectual. They may be the smartest person in the room. But they are not, and they are not humble. I am not sure. I'm not so certain. It's unclear to me. Are not statements of humility. These people are conceited and understand nothing. We come as little children. The Lord says, do. And he doesn't have to say, why? Right? We seek God for his mind. What is your will, God, in this circumstance? And because he is our master, and because he is our father, he will tell us his will. But by what imagination can we ever think that God owes us an explanation? We don't come to God and say, God, what is your will? And explain it to me before I do it. We have every right to ask what? Because a good servant, a good child, wants to know the what of his master's will so that he can do it with a joyful heart and do it completely in honor and respect. But that child and that slave has no right to ask why. And God doesn't have to tell us. Humility accepts what God has said without debate, without question, and without reservation. I don't know why my mother used to tell us. If I tell you to lick a skunk on a stick, then lick it. (laughs) Why would anybody ever put a skunk on a stick? I don't know. And then lick it. Doesn't matter. She was making her point. I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. (laughs) Yours is not to ask why or you will die. (laughs) Understanding is understanding your place under God and his word. Understanding spiritually only comes through obedience. As Oswald Chaber says, if there is something you don't understand, there is something you are not obeying. Because in the spiritual realm, it is not like the secular realm. In the secular realm, if you don't understand it, you just need to apply yourself a little bit more. Work at it a little bit more. Study a little bit harder. In the spiritual realm, it has nothing to do with that. Because in the spiritual realm, God has meant for revelation to come by the Spirit of God through His Word. 
And if I'm not understanding something that God intends me to understand, and some things God doesn't intend for us to understand, we have to accept that. But if there's something God truly intends for me to understand and I'm not understanding it, there is one reason. Disobedience. I am not yielded to what God is saying to me in some area of my life. This is why when we pray, it is absolutely incumbent upon us. We have not gotten to the place that God wants us to get to in prayer until we can truly say from our heart, not my will be done, but thy will be done. That's the surrender. And we are not asking God why. We're just saying, God, what? What would you have me to do? And even in that, I know I'm not able in my own strength. I'm going to need your grace. Absolutely. Understanding is through obedience and surrender, not debating, challenging, questioning, redefining, minimizing, nullifying, or qualifying God's word. I heard a pastor recently comment on another pastor in his same city. The people in that church aren't allowed to think. Really? How? I, I just like to know. I didn't, have, I didn't retort with this, but I just like to know. How does a pastor or an elder, elder body of a church, keep people from thinking? If you could explain that one to me, I'd like to know. But that was the comment. The people in that church aren't allowed to think. I'm not sure what he was saying. But I wonder if what he was saying is, those people believe God speaks clearly and absolutely, and that some things are not up for debate. We simply have to bow, accept, and change. And ourselves be brought into conformity to it, and not conform what we call truth to what we want. If you're taking a body that says, God's word is my authority, Jesus Christ is my head, and it is not up to me to redefine, to try to clarify, to try to minimize, to nullify what God has said, but to accept it as truth and the authority of my life. If that's what you mean by not thinking, guilty. That's what we should be saying. There is so much to think about and thoughts that are worthy of God. And we can spend all day long and we will spend all of eternity thinking worthy thoughts of God. We are going to think more clearly than we have ever thought in our lives when we step before the God in eternity. And we are going to be saying, yes, sir. There are things that God is going to tell us for the rest of eternity that he expects no debate on. They are simple, stated, clearly. They are absolutes for all of eternity, and it's never going to change. And we will be thinking better than we've ever thought in our lives. There is not a contradiction between having a brain that works and saying yes to Jesus Christ and his word. They're conceited and understand nothing. And their interest is in molehills that divide. 
controversial questions, disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth and suppose that godliness is a means of gain. It would seem that godliness being a means of gain, Paul seems to be referring to, they think that being in the ministry can get you rich. Whatever he means by, by that and, and all this other about the controversial questions and disputes about words, I think this much is true. The problem that these slaves were having is that they weren't accepting that the doctrine that they have embraced, the doctrine of faith and grace through Jesus Christ, is not meant just to get us to heaven. It is to be fleshed out in how we live before each other. And that same doctrine of God's sovereignty and our submission to him is also fleshed out in how we handle God's word. And the teacher is to approach it in humility, not in conceit, placing himself under God's word, not redirecting what he doesn't want to hear, but saying, God, speak to me. This is what God has called us to. And he is sufficient for these things. I'll close us in prayer. There is nothing, Lord Jesus, about this life that you have called us to which fits with anything of Satan's kingdom in this world. I pray that we would accept that that our citizenship is in heaven and that what you're wanting to do in us, reproducing your very life in our humanity so that you are seen is not going to fit with what this world says. But I thank you, O Father, that your ways are good and right true and we do Lord want to be a people who walk humbly with their God who don't question you who don't put ourselves over your word and we live before men knowing that you are our master we thank you God for this great privilege to be earthen vessels that the very glory of God indwells, that you in all your glory would be seen in our humanity. And we thank you that you alone are adequate for these things. It is a high calling, but it is, God, by the grace that you supply, possible. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.